Hello and welcome to the African Tech Roundup, episode 84 for the week ending Monday, November 21st, 2016. This is where we round up the week's most important tech, digital and innovation news from across the African continent. My name is Andy Lemasugu. Thanks for listening in. We have a jam-packed show for you today. A little later on, I'll be sharing part of an interesting conversation I had with Milena Tayeb. Uh, she's the head of video for France, Africa and the Middle East at Believe Digital Studios, which is the world's leading multi-channel network specializing in multi-platform distribution, audience development, and content monetization. But before we get to that, we'll cover the week's biggest news, including SpaceX requesting U.S. government approval to operate a satellite network providing high-speed global internet coverage, the Kenyan agritech startup WeFarm landing a $1.6 million investment, and Liquid Telecom securing a $300 million line of credit to help fund expansion on the continent. That's all ahead, but first... This episode of the African Tech Roundup is brought to you by the African Tech Conversation Series, which features in-depth chats with leading figures from Africa's tech and innovation scene. Now, we're happy to announce that the next season of the series lands in just three weeks and will feature the likes of Solomon Asefa, who's the director of IBM Research on the Continent, Eline Blaubauer, who's managing partner at TBL Mirror Fund, as well as Safaricom Spark Venture Fund, as well as Chad Larson, co-founder and chief credit officer at MCOPA. It's definitely fixed to be a pretty awesome season. In the meantime, though, catch up on some of the interviews you might have missed by heading to africantechroundup.com and clicking on the African Tech Conversations tab in the main menu or just search for African Tech Conversations on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher or any other great podcatcher out there. And with all that said, it's on to this week's news. Now, we'll start with some listener reaction to the cheeky question I asked on the show last week. Now, I asked what or who did more to help Trump become America's first citizen? Is it Facebook with all that fake news floating around the platform, reinforced by algorithms that uh, allegedly amplify voices that users want to hear? Or perhaps Julian Assange with his not-so-subtle anti-Hillary agenda and arsenal of damning WikiLeaks? Now, the question elicited some pretty insightful responses, uh, like the clip I'm about to play you, which is part of a WhatsApp conversation I had with one of our listeners named Nicholas. Um, he's based in the Washington, D.C. area, and he's kindly given me permission to share it with all of you. So take a listen to this. So at the end of uh, this week's podcast, you asked a question about the election. Um, one of the things that you mentioned was the Facebook comment, and I've noticed a lot of the media here that, in my opinion, have a bias, um, which is fine. We all have a bias, uh, not just the media, but everyone in general. But a lot of the media here is asking the same question about Facebook. The question that I would love to ask them is, if Hillary Clinton would have won the election, would you still be asking the same question about Facebook? My whole thing is, if Facebook is an aggregator of people's personal opinions and it leads to them only hearing voices that they agree with, I think the same thing still happens anyways. For the most part, I think people tend to self-segregate as far as ideologically. Um, so all of your friends have your same views for the most part. Uh, so even if it wasn't online that you were only hearing your own opinions that you agreed with, even if you were just hanging out with people that you care about, you know, for the most part, I think a lot of them would agree with you as well. And then the second part that you asked about was uh, the Julian Assange piece. I don't know how much that really, really played into it, the election results. 
the, a lot, a lot of the media was so far off here with the this election cycle. I think they're kind of reaching for any reason to explain why they were wrong. I feel like they think there's no way that anyone would possibly want Donald Trump to be president. So the fact that he became president, how is it that their opinion was so off? Um, and I've been telling my wife for a year, I guess I'll uh, kind of a little caveat, um, happened to be a pretty conservative Republican. This cycle, I didn't like anyone running in the Republican primary. So I actually um, didn't vote for anyone in the primary. And I actually didn't vote for president in the general. I voted in congressional and other elections, but not um, not the top of the ticket. You know, lesser of two evils, meh. I decided, to sit, you know, decided I'd sit that one out instead. But for the past year, I've been telling my wife and, and other people that I'm talking to, too, there are the one thing that no one could account for was voter turnout. When Donald Trump announced that he was running at first, everyone in the media automatically said, oh, well, there's no way he could possibly get the nomination. It's not possible. They were wrong, clearly. <laughs> and then, oh, well, there's no way that he'll win the, as president. Even my wife was saying that. Um, but again, everyone was wrong. Um, I think they misjudge the enthusiasm of people and a lot of the emotions. Um, so I don't know how much Julian Assange, uh, that whole thing played. I actually think Hillary Clinton was a pretty flawed candidate. Both of them, honestly, were flawed candidates. But um, Hillary has so much history and baggage. Uh, even eight years ago during the Democratic primary when um, she was running against Senator Obama, even then, I didn't think she was going to get the nomination. Yes, she's Hillary Clinton, and she's been in the public eye for a long time, but that's a double-edged sword um, because most people in the U.S. Uh, that are adults, at least my age or older, I'm uh, 33, so um, you already have an opinion on Hillary Clinton. There's no moving you towards liking her. Like, if I get to know her more, maybe I'll like her, or... If I get to know her more, maybe I'll dislike her. Most people's opinions of her, I feel, are fixed because she's been in the public eye so long. And she's kind of a polarizing on both sides. And even a lot of the Democrats were not enthusiastic about her, which is why she didn't, which is why Bernie Sanders did as well as he did during the Democratic primary. So, yeah, that's just my two cents or whatever. <laughs> Now, I kind of buy what he's saying about America's mainstream media being, you know, out of touch with the man on the street, uh, essentially creating an echo chamber and now desperately looking for a scapegoat for why they didn't see this election result coming. This despite all their polls, which, as Nicholas points out, were pretty useless. And my whole thing is I think America might be having a hard time facing a couple of inconvenient truths like Hillary Clinton is corrupt uh, uh, or a big percentage of white America is racist or xenophobic or out of their minds scared for the future or all of the above. And then there's that ridiculous electoral college system to account for. That said, I wouldn't be surprised if Julian Assange was found to be behind the Russian leak, which revealed that the Democrats connived to get Bernie out of the way so Clinton could, could head to the White House. Um, definitely sounds like something he could have orchestrated. And I consider that to be one of the more devastating things to happen to Hillary on you know her road to disappointment now while i agree with nicholas that facebook's role in this election might be overstated a part of me feels that they do need to police these fake news publishers uh, a lot better um then there's another part of me that feels like if we if we ask them to do that we'd be giving them permission to censor people and i'm not sure who should get to decide what gets validated as real news or not and maybe it should be our job as 
an international online community to do that ourselves and not pass the buck on to Facebook or anyone else. Now, I don't know. There's no easy answers to this. Um, nevertheless, I do thank you, Nicholas, for allowing me to share your views with uh, all our listeners. And of course, if you'd like to share some of your views on the show, do send us an audio note via hello at africantechroundup.com. Moving on now, global internet coverage isn't too far from becoming a reality, well, at least not if Elon Musk has anything to say about it. The U.S. Federal Communications Commission has confirmed that SpaceX has requested it to approve their plans to operate a massive satellite network that would provide high-speed global internet coverage. Now, the proposed project will consist of 4,425 satellites, which Musk says SpaceX has already started to build. 800 of which would be launched to improve internet access in the United States, uh, including the Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico. Now, I hear all that, but um, there's no doubt that the real business opportunity is connecting developing parts of the world, not least in Africa, who currently make up the vast majority of the world's unconnected populations. Now, SpaceX does have some competition in this space, though, with OneWeb and Boeing said to be interested in launching similar internet via satellite networks. Yeah, look, they're looking to provide space-based alternatives to, you know, what's out there, cable, fiber optics, and pretty much every other terrestrial internet access option out there. The project is set to cost SpaceX no less than $10 billion. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> quite an undertaking. Let's see what U.S. lawmakers make of this and whether net neutrality watchdogs around the world trust Elon Musk and SpaceX to responsibly execute on something they don't trust the likes of Google and Facebook to do. Now, to easily some of the most publicized investment news of the past week, that is the $1.6 million investment haul made by the Kenyan agritech startup WeFarm. Now, the so-called seed round was led by Local Globe. And um, I guess I say so-called because uh, there's an ongoing debate about startups boasting seed rounds of over $1 million to hype up investor enthusiasm for future rounds. Perhaps to give investors uh, they already have on board the sense that they got in early and feel good about it. Uh, and perhaps to give future investors the sense that they better invest uh, in the next round before valuations go through the roof. Now, I'm not saying that's what's happening here, but I do know that $1.6 million is way higher than what we're accustomed to, to seeing in terms of seed rounds uh, for tech startups on the continent. Nevertheless, I digress. Uh, WeFarm, in case you're not familiar with the company, is an information platform for farmers. It was launched in 2015, and uh, this particular round uh, was raised on the strength of WeFarm, so far managing to onboard 100,000 farmers in Kenya, Uganda, and Peru. Pretty impressive. Now, the platform is text messaging-based and allows farmers to to share farming information and tips without access to the internet all around the world. The vision for this network is to become an indispensable channel for farmers who are looking to contribute towards the world's food supply chain. And that's alleviating the current strain on global food supply. Now, in other tech finance news, the Econet Wireless-owned Liquid Telecom has secured a 300 million line of credit to fund growth in Botswana, Tanzania, and of course, South Africa, where they need cash to help fund their acquisition of Neotel, a deal worth nearly $452 million. And that deal is expected to close in early 2017. Now, the loan comes courtesy of Standard Bank, who will be taking on Neotel's debt as part of the deal struck with Neotel's former owners, Indian Tata Communications. Zimbabwe's Strive Masiua and his team at Econus Wireless are easily one of the more aggressive on the continent in terms of growth, uh, both within the telecom space and in the media space, what with Kwese taking on the likes of Nasper's in the linear television space, as well as taking on VOD incumbents, as well as online content producers. Now, given all this, I reckon 2017 uh, will be a big year for Econet Wireless. 
Then, uh, rounding off the past week's investment highlights, uh, not because of the size of the investment, but in this case because of the nod towards uh, growth of audio podcasting in Africa, is an investment of just over $170,000 made by Clifftop Colony, as well as a handful of local and international angel investors in the South African online audio distribution platform, Iono.fm. Now, Iono.fm provides a platform on which radio stations and independent podcasters are able to distribute their audio content online. Now, among the platform's esteemed users is, of course, the African Tech Roundup podcast, as well as the African Tech Conversation series. Uh, International users uh, feature the likes of BBC, Deutsche Welle, as well as TED. And so Iona.fm is looking to consolidate their market leadership in South Africa and, of course, shore up their streaming and podcasting services to the rest of the continent. Now, Iono is claiming 86% growth in podcast listens over the past year, and they now host an impressive 220,000 episodes in total, uh, with 12,000 new episodes being published every month. Well, we wish them all the best, certainly. To Kenya now, where the government has restated its resolve to roll out smart plates and digital licenses, despite the plan hitting a snag back in June when the controversial tender for that business was awarded to the National Bank of Kenya. Uh, It was then challenged by a rival company as well as petitioners who argued that Kenya's Banking Act uh, does not provide for a bank to operate so far outside their core business without clearance from the country's central bank. Now, this led to a court ordering that the tender process be redone And so with all that now settled, uh, the rollout of smart number plates and licenses is expected to begin in June 2017. Huawei and the Kenyan firm Copycat Group are now set to manage the project under something called the Transport Integrated Management System, or TIMS, uh, which is a web portal incorporating registration, licensing, inspection, and enforcement of vehicles. Uh, Kenya plans to use TIMS to centralize road transport data and make it available for the public. So Kenyans can look forward to a great deal more efficiency as far as their traffic registry system is concerned. Traffic violators best beware, though, because a point system in which license holders will get points deducted for various traffic offenses is set to be inducted. And after a certain amount of repeat offenses, points might be exhausted, which could then lead to a driver's license being confiscated for a period of time. This is no doubt music to the ears of law enforcement, I'm sure. Now, staying with traffic-related news, Nigeria can expect more taxis to hit the streets now that the Eastern European ride-sharing service Taxify has announced that it's headed to Lagos. Now, the company is currently operating in 20 cities across 15 countries. That includes four cities on the continent, uh, namely Joburg, Cape Town, Accra, and Nairobi. Now, Taxify is promising Nigerians that they should expect to pay 30% less than what their closest rivals charge, and that drivers who drive for them will earn 15% more than what they might get working for someone else. Now, I haven't tried Taxify in Johannesburg yet, but my co-producer Brian says he digs it, so... Uh, I'm probably going to give it a chance one of these days. But how excited are you, Nigeria? Tell us uh, what you make of both Little and Taxify when they land. And if you're one of those disgruntled Uber drivers who went on strike in Abuja, are you thinking of jumping ship? Let us know on Twitter at African Roundup. Now, our last story this week is an international item involving the social media platform LinkedIn. Now, in case you haven't been able to get a hold of your Russian business associates on the platform and you've been wondering why, well, Russia's communications regulator ordered public access to LinkedIn's website to be blocked late last week to comply with a court ruling that found that LinkedIn was guilty of violating a data storage law, which requires websites that store the personal data of Russian citizens to do so on Russian servers. 
And so it turns out LinkedIn hasn't been doing this. Now, it's a law that's said to have been approved by Putin in 2014, and it's been enforced since September last year. So it's either a massive oversight on LinkedIn's part or a sign that they didn't take the government seriously. This has sparked a huge debate about privacy, data security, data integrity, and of course, the the murky world of governments asserting their sovereignty in matters of internet governance. Uh, Some are sensing sinister motives on the part of the Kremlin in demanding all personal information of its citizens to reside within servers hosted within the country. Now, the Russian government will no doubt argue that this is in the interest of national security. I haven't applied my mind long and hard enough to have a firm position on whether or not Russia might be overreaching in terms of its sovereign rights in this regard. But I do think that it makes for an interesting conversation. I also wonder whether, you know, that leaves other major tech firms, social media platforms like, say, Facebook, Twitter, or Snapchat, uh, you know, exposed. I mean, they might very well be storing the personal information of their users outside their home countries. I can't help feeling that this is a warning shot and that Russia is picking on one of the runs of the litter before taking this fight to more popular behemoths like Facebook. So we'll see how this works out and um, definitely be interesting to see how other countries uh, treat this issue. And so those were the week's headlines, folks. As promised, I'll now be sharing part of an interesting conversation I had with a lady named Milena Tayeb. I spoke to her at Digital Lab Africa at Discop recently. Milena is the head of video for France, Africa, and the Middle East at Believe Digital Studios, which is the world's leading multi-channel network. They specialize in multi-platform distribution, audience development, and uh, monetizing content online. Believe Studios is YouTube's number one partner in Europe. They garner something like 4 billion views per month uh, across 60 genre channels and 10,000 partner channels. So they're no joke. Here's Milena talking me through how Believe has upended the traditional music and video production business and explaining how, despite the plethora of self-publication platforms available to creators today, uh, success is predicated on executing a killer digital strategy. Take a listen. Milena Tayeb of Believe, welcome to the African Tech Roundup. Thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure. Now, we were talking offline, uh, you uh, telling me a little bit about the company, and there were quite a few interesting facts about Believe that I wasn't aware of. One, that it's a French company, correct? Yeah, definitely. We're based in Paris, but we have um, 33 offices in all over the world, so the U.S., Russia, um, uh, pretty much everywhere in the world, all over Europe, obviously, so yeah. And then when it comes to digital content distribution, you are easily one of the world's biggest, if not the world's biggest, at what you do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We're the the leading uh, digital uh, music distribution company um, for independent labels and artists. So that's one important point. We're independent. That's fantastic. So uh, in your in your role, current role, you take care of the Middle East, I believe, Africa as well as a you know as a continent in terms of that. Yeah, um, so my role is is um, on the video part. So we're doing both audio and video distribution on 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 platforms such as iTunes, Deezer, Spotify, but also YouTube and Vivo. Uh, we we distribute over three hundred platforms, and I'm taking care of the video distribution part of things um, in in France, Africa, and Middle East. Help me uh, come to terms with the how and what you do as a company. In, in comparing it to the traditional music business, right? So, uh, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, in the past, you, you'd, you'd be an artist, hopefully uh, playing a, a local scene. You'd be spotted by an A&R, A&R executive, uh, a, a talent executive from a, you know, a talent development executive from a, from, a local, from a label who would then, you know, 
sweet talk you into signing a deal that uh, gave you a lump sum up front to create all this amazing music in exchange for a share of everything um, at the end, usually the lion's share. How has what you guys do changed that model fundamentally? So it's a, it's a very different model. So um, we're doing distribution, um, and, and right now uh, artists, uh, thanks to digital, they're able actually to, um, to distribute themselves without having a label deal. So they're able to stay independent and have just distribution deals uh, to be able to uh, distribute on local platforms, uh, on international platforms, uh, and to get support, what we call, uh, label management, so strategy support. Uh, what we're doing also is uh, obviously trade marketing, which is one of the most important things in digital, um, which is uh, getting highlights on platforms. Uh, for example, getting um, a highlight on, on Hydron's homepage or getting a playlist on Deezer. So uh, that's the trade marketing we're doing um, uh, locally, thanks to our different offices. And for uh, international artists, we're doing this um, um, locally in different countries so that we're able to work uh, internationally. On their projects, um, obviously we, we have a, a very definite suite of, of tools for reporting and analytics that are really detailed and that are actually helping um, artists and labels to to know um, how their releases are are going, how they're um, uh, what what in what country they're succeeding, uh, uh, where um, do their streams come from, if people are listening to it over and over again, or if they're just not listening to it again. So it's a, a good way for them to actually orient at their promotion, their their touring, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and um, and the, the last thing, obviously, is video um, video distribution, where we do um, full video management. So we are, we're actually taking care of artists' channels, um, and our goal is to develop their um, subscribers, their views, and obviously their revenues, because um, uh, YouTube is a, a monetization platform. Here's the thing. In my mind, you know, what the Internet has done is democratized uh, access to, to markets and audiences and communities, and you can build those yourself. Except um, you mentioned YouTube's an excellent example of, of what many feel like this free tool where I can express myself to the world, but really it's a business tool. So explain the tension between this idea that uh, you can be a great artist with a great product um, with access to all these tools, but still not make it and, 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 and sort of speak to how you guys fill that gap. Well, um, uh, it's a <laughs> complex question, but basically... Um, um, what we're doing with the artist is actually getting them the, the best, uh, I don't know if you can say that in English, uh, conjunctor um, for, for, for their releases to actually get seen on YouTube. For example, get better SEO, so such search engine uh, uh, optimization. So to make sure that your latest um, uh, music videos, when someone is, is typing in the, the name of the artist, is coming up as first. And then um, you get uh, better reach, but it's also uh, supporting them in like their strategy globally. Like, what, what, how are you gonna uh, reach audiences on YouTube? You don't have just to put your your music video on YouTube, but you actually have to do some kind of promotion. So actually uh, supporting them in in, in sending their uh, new video releases to to media and blogs and stuff like this to get embeds and articles. Um, but also what we call video trade marketing, which is uh, actually contacting platforms that are having editorial teams that are um, um, doing highlights on their own pages um, um, to get um, to get more views. YouTube is not doing this, so everything is algorithm with YouTube, so no promotion uh, possible. So you have to find other ways, good strategies. And um, um, if I can find an example, uh, we're distributing um, Serge Beno, who is a, um, a French-speaking artist, 
um, um, a coupe décalé artist um, that um, that actually won the the, the prize for best um, um, music artist at the MTV, best French-speaking music artist at the MTV uh, um, African Music Awards 2016. And for him, for example, his strategy is is amazing on YouTube because he is um, he's working a lot with dancers that are making choreographies on his channel, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And for example. Um, um, all of his fans are taking um, those dances, those dances, and they're making uh, their own videos out of it on YouTube. So it's a great way for him to get discovered on YouTube. You know, it's a good strategy, and it's also a source of revenue for him because uh, those videos, since they're using his music, we're monetizing it for him. You know, I don't know if this answers your question. <laughs> it actually does because uh, I suppose I asked it. It, it was almost like an apple with a barb inside because the child in me wants to believe that if if I got this beautiful thing I've created, music or or something visual, and I put it on YouTube, and it's so beautiful, it will find its people and it will go and it will make me money. And and I suppose that's the that's the innocence in me speaking. But the truth of it is. Um, in the digital realm, producing as producers in the digital realm, we understand that there's a science to it, um, a, a finesse to it that often goes ignored. And I think you've spoken to that quite eloquently. Yeah. And it's a it's a global structure. So uh, once you have a very successful strategy on on video, so you you not only you get your uh, music on the platform, but you get it seen from other ways through promotion, for example. Um, once you have this strategy on YouTube, it's obviously um, 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 a good sign for your audio strategy as well. So everything has to be coherent. And for example, uh, um, I believe whenever a label or an artist is signing with, with us, he has two contact points, so one for audio and one for video. And those two people are, are working together and talking to each other to make sure that the, the, the release strategy is actually coherent globally. And so how does Believe uh, monetize... The, the, the service delivery process in, in, the, in that context? Because it sounds to me like, again, if we think about the traditional model, we've spoken about the artist and the, and the label, but in a super developed uh, uh, music model, traditionally you would have had a manager who takes a percentage of everything. Uh, the label obviously takes a, a big chunk of sales off the album and, and helps you you know, network using their back, background. And then there's a their booking agent sometimes, their concert tour agent, there's agents for about just about every aspect of the artist's life. What do you guys take control of? How do you monetize that? And what do you stay out of? So in terms of, of monetization, it's really through the platforms we're uh, working with. So for streaming, it's, uh, it's uh, advertising supported and, and uh, paid subscriptions. Uh, for downloads, you know already. Um, um, so um, uh, all of the monetization, for example, YouTube is ad-supported, so everything comes from advertising. Um, so those are the monetization incomes for, for us as a distributor. We're uh, definitely a distributor, so we're not doing touring. And we're not doing what um, a label is supposed to do. But I, when I say he's supposed to, an artist by himself, a new talent emerging, he could be doing a lot of those, those things by himself, not having a label. So uh, doing a little promotion, using social networks, posting on YouTube, all of this is, is something now artists can do without a label. What we're doing is after that work is done, so um, touring apart, um, all of the strategy where you want to go in terms of, of artistic also because we're not doing artistic. Um, we're coming at, at this point where you, you have your, uh, your product, your image, uh, 
uh, you've thought about all this and you what you want is actually to be able to deliver on platforms to be reachable to audiences and so um, we're, we're here for this for this part of the business tell me a little bit about how you go about deciding who to work with listening to us today are no doubt uh, thousands of uh, hopeful artists who, who, who think they're great, um, who think they've done the work you just described and uh, listening to you can't wait to, to you know, just, just send you an email. Uh, do, is there some sort of uh, selection criteria that you observe in, in deciding who to work with? And, um, and what does that cycle look like in terms of bringing someone on board? It's always a decision Whereas uh, we, we see the artist and the label, uh, our exchange is productive and we see that there is structure, that there is potential artistically, uh, that we believe in the project, um, then we're going to sign it. Um, um, we tend not to sign uh, really, really um, um, emerging, emerging artists um, uh, when we feel that there is no... no not enough work or structure behind it, just because for us as distributor, we do have to have like a, a contact point that's really thoughtful and that has market in intelligence already. Um, we're, we're there to support them, obviously, um, but uh, but um, we're obviously not signing everything uh, uh, out there, and there are so many projects coming up. Uh, but um, we were also the, the mother company of TuneCore, which is an aggregation company. Um, I don't know if you know about this, but a lot of African artists are actually using TuneCore to distribute to platforms. So the, the principle is, is simple. You, you pay a flat rate to, um, to get distributed on all, all the platforms digitally, and you get 100% of your royalties back. So that's a, a good first step for uh, new talents, emerging art, talents that don't necessarily have like support or labels, stuff, stuff like this, and that do want to have their releases on, on global international platforms. Um, so but that would be minus all the support you've mentioned uh, right. that you know that you would you'd enjoy it believe for example exactly. but what, one thing important is is um, for example an artist on TuneCore um, um, if we see that an artist on TuneCore is is doing great with this project uh, that is is being managed by by himself um, we we notice it and um, if it's a great project we usually would signing on the on the believe um, uh, part of the services which is a with more support so millennia so in, in terms of uh, advice you you would give to hybrid creators right when I say hybrid um, there's some people who are really clear about what they are and who they are as an artist right and typically they're a musician first and and maybe other things but but Principally, musicians and creating content in that space, the, the music, the music videos, all that. But there's this new wave of creators that's creating short-form content on on Vine, on on YouTube, and and uh, and Insta with Insta Stories and stuff. And 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 they're building really substantial followings around these things with the potential to monetize. How do you approach that, if at all? Um, yeah, sure. We we're, we're actually working with um, some what we call YouTubers. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. So YouTubers would definitely fall into that cat category because um, short form content. Um, you mean entertainment content or or, or still still focused on music? Uh, entertainment content in general, and and, and perhaps uh, I mean let's let's use our our platform for example. We're starting to dabble, for example, in in, in short form video on social media, Facebook, Insta video, etc. Uh, we already have an established podcast. Is there a is there room in your model for hybrids of any kind on YouTube in the world of podcasting, vodcasting? 
there, there's always room for uh, for all this, and we're we're actually working not only with YouTubers, but only with uh, uh, but but also with uh, media production companies. So it's a different strategy. It's not the, the same way we work um, with uh, with those guys than with labels and artists, music artists, obviously. Um, and we have um, specific teams for each kind of content. So, for example, we do have uh, uh, what we call entertainment channel manager that's uh, that's um, that's focusing on those partners because it's not the same way. But there definitely is room. Uh, I don't know if you have a specific question about how we're working with them. It's just not the same logic. You don't have like the audio video strategy coherent coherence part. Um, you you do have to have like a coherent strategy with uh, your your what your business is next to it. For example, for a, a production company, it's going to be usually uh, TV and finding broadcasters and stuff like this. Um, so you do have to be careful on your uh, YouTube strategy. For example, how are you going to not cannibalize your offer next to this? So that's one thing we're going to think about with them, you know, how to have the best strategy to actually be able to, to, to be present on YouTube but not cannibalize your, your actual um, um, core business. And you, yeah, you actually make me think of something. So say I started out on YouTube, I get this amazing following, but guess what? I have this voice and I'm going to launch this amazing career. And, and so you're talking about thinking, being a step ahead of any potential conflict in terms of, uh, well, uh, I suppose, like you say, cannibalization of, of, uh, of, uh, of revenue. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you mean you mean you you like your example was basically um, um, uh, I don't know a YouTuber that's gonna um, uh, start a music project. So let's take one of the world's biggest YouTubers, an Indian an Indian YouTuber named Lily Singh. Started out doing impressions, shooting stuff out of her bedroom. She's since become this massive star. But guess what? She's a little, you know she does concert tours where she does live meets with her fans, which are turning into these massive you know, into these massive arenas, uh, tours, as, as she sings, she raps a little, she's got all this vibe. She, I think the typical hybrid I have in mind in the entertainment space, and I'm wondering if someone like her doesn't have people like you in the background helping her maximize her, her career. She certainly does. She definitely does. I, I think she would have uh, probably managers, um, uh, but she, uh, I think she probably... Uh, I'm not sure for for this uh, particular artist, but basically, um, you 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 definitely, uh, and especially at the start, you definitely need to have support uh, for what you're doing. YouTube sounds easy, but it's really not. Um, uh, it's a it's a lot more technical than people would think. Uh, it's a lot more work um, to do on the platform and a lot of knowledge to have. Uh, to be able to actually get out there, uh, be successful, and then be able to do other stuff such as, you know, touring, uh, writing a book, making shows, cooking shows. I don't know, like you know. Uh, so, so you definitely, uh, I think, need that support um, at least at first. Some of of, of those um, YouTubers, for example, they're uh, now they know what they're doing and they're able to do it uh, by themselves. But uh, I'm I'm pretty sure they do have uh, support for other kind of stuff, which is like you know, press, marketing promotion all of those things so yeah what's the next big thing for this industry uh, do you think what's the next big foray and i'll ask that in the context of at&t's re recent acquisition of time warner mm -hmm. so we see a trend towards um the telcos around the world waking up to hey we need to make these big media plays uh, media companies opening uh, uh, you know traditional media companies thinking oh we need to go digital um some have suggested that distribution is next as the next uh, sensible acquisition target uh, in the in the food chain for for these big traditional firms, what do you think of that of that thinking? 
Because because it's uh, but what you're acquiring, I'm guessing, when you're acquiring a distribution company is mainly catalog. So obviously it's gonna you know it's it all comes together whenever you're you're starting you're having telcos uh, a big media group and then so it's all coming together because you you need you basically need all of those different players to be able to have um, a full chain of of everything if you're buying distribution companies as well you have the whole chain by yourself and you're able to lead your strategy by yourself so yeah. <laughs> so it's sound thinking to think that's a, a logical step to think that um, distributors are going to be targeted next for hostile takeovers and acquisitions and that kind of thing? Yeah, probably. Well, we'll see what the future holds. <laughs> May I please beg believe to hold out so that we don't have neutrality issues? <laughs> no. <laughs> but thank you so much for talking to us today. I asked you some... Many, many thanks to Milena Tayeb of Believe Studios for speaking to me. Milena is of Tunisian descent uh, and so... It was nice to keep it in the family, so to speak. Mm, yeah, so that's nearly it for this week. This episode of the African Tech Roundup is brought to you by the African Tech Conversation series. We're happy to announce that the next season of the series lands in just three weeks and will feature the likes of Solomon Asefa, the director of IBM Research on the Continent, Aline Blabwa, managing partner at TBL Mirror Fund and Safaricom Spark Venture Fund, as well as Chad Lawson, co-founder and chief credit officer at MCOPA. Yep. Fixing to be a pretty awesome season indeed. In the meantime, do catch up on some of the interviews you may have missed by heading to africantechroundup.com and clicking on the African Tech Conversations tab in the main menu or searching for African Tech Conversations on iTunes or any other great podcatcher. That is the week's show, folks. Uh, please do join me again next week on africantechroundup.com. Heads up to those of you attending SAP's Executive Digital Exchange uh, going down at the 12th Apostles Hotel in Cape Town next week, November 30th and December 1st. If you've copped an invite to that, I look forward to uh, hanging out with you as well as rubbing shoulders with SAP's Digital Transformation Officer, Dr. Chucky Baudry, as well as SAP's Managing Director for Africa, Brett Parker. Should be a blast. But for now, I'm Andile Masugu. Until next time, do take care, Africa. Africa.